Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community, and welcome to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today I've got a very interesting guest who I first saw speak at the Natural Resources Conference a few months ago in London. And I was intrigued and fascinated in what he had to share with the audience. And I think you will also uh, be fascinated with uh, the content that's going to be uh, providing this podcast. David Moran is a entrepreneur and his work is around decoding major historical events to forecast global change in today's world. Helping you make informed decisions that avoid repeating past destructive cycles so you can create positive, actionable strategies for the future. He's written two books and one of them is uh, breaking the code of history, which post 9-11, recognising that the world has changed in an instant and highlights the key process in human social structures that impact on today's changing world. So I'm going to let David give you a snapshot of his career and his journey and um, where he is today. And then I've got some questions uh, to help our audience make sense of some of your theories and how you've uh, how you've come to some of these conclusions. So I'd like to welcome David Murren. Hi, hi, David. Hi, Rob. Thanks very much for such a generous welcome. Yeah, no worries. Th- thanks a lot for agreeing to, uh, to do this podcast. So for obviously people that don't know you, I wonder if you can give us a, a brief background um, of yourself and your journey um, and to where you are today and, and what you've been up to. And then I've obviously got some questions that I'd like to ask you around some of your um, theories and what you've uh, what you've been writing about, and obviously try and focus on the um, um, extractive industries. Um, and obviously, this is this is a mining podcast. So, yeah, if you can just give us a background of your uh, of your journey. Well, uh, essentially, I'm English. I was brought up in England, uh, with the exception that my father travelled a lot. So, at a time, and I'm born. It was born in '63, and relatively speaking, the horizons are quite narrow then. So. Um, we traveled as a family. My father was involved in America, and that was a very, very powerful, expansive society, very optimistic and positive, which left a lasting impression on me and affection for the nation, too. Um, and I was state school educated, uh, which essentially I spoke rather, rather, rather good English because of my mother and I stood out like a sore thumb. So I learned the uh, simple schoolboy experience of standing out, being bullied and learning how to defend yourself, which strange enough is a microcosm of, of something we'll talk about later, which is, you know, the way states interrelate are no different from playground politics and dynamics. If you can't defend yourself, you become the victim of a bully. And if you can defend yourself, the bully walks away. So that's a lasting impression in my educational process. And then I ended up at Exeter University studying physics. I specialized in geophysics because I really felt that was a, a, a really fascinating, interesting application. And at the, all this time, I, from the probably the very earliest age, I was fascinated by military history. 
and my whole family uh, on one side came from a military background so it was almost genetically coded I think but I was really fascinated by wars how they started why we did it how we fought them the ingenuity and really how do they keep blighting society when everyone said they didn't want them but they keep happening and that was a question that's run all the way through my life um, so by the time I graduated I had a degree in physics with uh, geophysics I loved the subject and I was determined to join a geophysical company a seismic company actually and was posted out into Papua New Guinea uh, back in about 86 working for Shell which was a really interesting education to say the least um, um, I ended up spending my first day at work on a helipad 100 miles an hour from help with 60 cannibals who um, happened in the morning to revolt at the concept of working in the rain and despite my best uh, motivational speech I ended up with a very violent son of a chief called Augustus wielding his machete and uh, bows and arrows and I thought that was probably bad enough having one other 60 <laughs> apoplectically behaving yeah. and complaining but suddenly all of a sudden it spread like the pebbles or the ripples in a pond when you threw a pebble in and all 60 were apoplectically angry fully armed all recently cannibals as well because they ate flesh in those days probably still do knowing that society <laughs> and um and and I was standing there miles away from help thinking, what do you do? If you run away, they'll just hack you down. If you fight them, they'll outfight you. So I'm going to use my simple willpower, jumped into the middle of them and just fronted it out by feeling very, very um, uncalm on the inside, but remain calm on the outside and walked through the middle of them as each one raised their weapon, daring them not to do it. And somehow at the end of it, I was alive as I sort of stepped gingerly towards my tarpauling they um, surrounded that after a little bit of thought because the first action hadn't worked i didn't realize it but in their culture when you run away that's when you get killed but actually fronting it out there was no sort of social code for that and that's why they were so bemused anyway they tried and they sort of beat me and bashed me and about four hours later i was still alive and i was surrounded by childlike figures who were completely vacant of emotion and i realized i'd seen something quite unique and and my observation was that one person's energy could be shared by the others the others could be charged like a capacitor and spike the charge and time would decay the charge and if you could survive that collective emotion you'd be alive at the end of it and i thought what a privilege to look back in man's history and see essentially how maybe we once were with a tribal construct and a low threshold of individuality little did i know that that's not quite how the modern world really works but we'll come on to that in a minute and after three years in new guinea um, which was fascinating but it was very much an extractive industry and where a service company was at the behest of the producers of oil and the buyers and as the price started to go down there was just incredible downturn in the business and i'll never forget what it was like to work in an organization where you worked hard but actually had no control over your future because the price was an external mechanism and i came away from that thinking that's a very strange way to make a living but it doesn't matter how good you are you're dependent on external functions and mechanisms that are way beyond your control so how could you start to understand them and how could you start to predict them in such a way as you were master of your own destiny and that was a question which stayed with me for a number of years before i started to answer it and my next incarnation was to join jp morgan which was rather an interesting leap it was 
mainly because the city back in 86, 87 was the only place in England where if you were good, meritocracy worked and you were rewarded. And I love that concept of working where good people were rewarded and less less capable people dropped out the bottom. And I was very lucky to join JP Morgan and I joined their trading floor knowing I wanted to take risk and understand risk. And I stood there thinking, I know nothing about this world. I'm a scientist, you know, I'm a seismologist. I've been in the jungle. Everyone else seems rather sort of different for me, just watch and see what comes out. And I remember looking at uh, the the economists and the educated degree orientated predictors, um, research guys, and on the whole, they didn't have a clue. They said they would say something's going to happen and it never really happened. It was just a theoretical construct that as a physicist didn't attach to reality. And on the other hand, you'd have guys who are uneducated from the East End who were really quite good sometimes at predicting what was going to happen and made a lot of money on the trading desks. And that fascinated me. And then suddenly I realized, actually, I was watching a similar collective behavioral pattern in our society, modern man, so-called, rather than pre-industrial. And people were sharing emotions and bright people were, were being reduced from a pocket calculator to you know, a, a postage stamp in thought process. And that's when I really, really woke up to this idea that we make decisions as a collective entity. Some individuals are better able to maintain their thought process in a group and see things differently. And the majority just act as a giant herd. And that was the beginning of my my whole career about predicting and anticipating price, first of all, as a, as a directional trader. And I covered everything from foreign exchange to bonds to commodities right from the earliest age. So obviously, in the, leading from JP Morgan, um, it was a natural step up to um, start my own hedge fund in 1993, when most people didn't know what a hedge fund was. But I was well aware of its uh, discretionary directional nature. And everything I'd done really in the previous years had been focused towards that. And then the second hedge fund was actually emergent, was focused on emerging markets, which, again, when you look back, is remarkable because emerging markets really were emerging. No one even thought they were of consequence. And yet today they're you know, prime drivers in global growth, China being the main one, but India behind it and Latin countries, too. So it's interesting to see how times and perceptions change and managing your own money in a structure that is very directionally orientated prior to the printing of money was all about alpha generation. It was about taking risk because you understood what was going to happen or thought you did and you knew when you were going to be wrong and um, when you were right, you were really right. And we had some super fantastic results from the Asian crisis where we made money from top to bottom from um, the big drop in 2001 to 2003 in the bear market there uh, and also the low and the investment into the new commodity cycle. And that was the first time I really started to understand and look at commodity cycles, recognizing that 2000 was the beginning of the next 54 year cycle, which we'll come on to in a little while. And we made a lot of money by buying gold, by buying Luke oil at 64 cents and selling it at $64. The same principles are really at the sharp end of, of predicting prices in commodities we were doing back in 2000 and 2005 very, very successfully as a group. Um, and then, as I mentioned to you, one of the seminal experiences was 9-11 at that stage, um, which we'll come on to in a minute. Yep, yep, certainly. I mean, obviously, with 9-11, obviously, that was a major impact that impacted the world. How did your um, how did your view change of the world when that happened? And obviously, with relation to natural resources and around mining and around the markets, once that happened, if you can go into depth around that. 
Well, it was a moment for me or in the months afterwards when my worldview completely changed. It um, Before it was bifurcated into my fascination with military history and human affairs, why we fought, how we fought. And then this other part, which was my day job, which was the economy and some degree of politics, but minor, really, because it affected economic policy, because we lived then in a world where America was just the dominant entity and could only be perceived as that by by everyone. So all of a sudden, the two strands came together and this idea that I couldn't get over the fact that Islamic fundamentalism had been trying to chip away at America like this for a decade before. And the number of um, um, attacks that had been frustrated by the intelligence agencies was significant. So why did it happen then? And my thought process really was, if a system stops expanding, and at that stage, I think we could conclude America had reached the, the peak of its really influence as a single hegemonic power where democracy and capitalism had just run over everyone successfully, they couldn't expand anymore. Had what really um, happened been the intelligence services failed to share their intelligence? And that was the cornerstone for thinking about how systems rise and fall. And it was, you know, in the next months when I sort of started to come up with this five phase theory of five distinct phases of how a system goes up and comes down over my research led me to see over four to 500 years. And um, specifically, the Western systems are slightly different, but we'll talk about that. So that was the, the, where everything came together. Now they became an integrated model. And people really after 9-11 were still mostly, they were thinking about economics with a war, but a war was never really going to change America because it was an expeditionary war. Um, and obviously it cost money, but that seemed to be something America could afford. So I was really before my time in thinking ahead. So by the time 2008 came along, my ideas are really firmly founded and we'll be investing using those ideas for you know the next six years as a, as a chief investment officer very successfully. And when the walk up to 9-11 um, or to, to 2008 took place, you could see this structural overbuild of lending, which came about through a failure to grow properly and financial engineering to leverage it. And you know, if you look at the, the big short, that's exactly what we did with our business. We picked up the same trade, same way, made 84% from it. And also, I also understood it was the first really big shake of what was the declining American financial structure, which was the last of the Western Christian empires. So the two are welded together. But going back also to 2000 or so, I'd identified a Kondratiev cycle of 54 years, which was developed back in the 30s, and we can cover it in detail in a minute. And we picked up the first shifts of gold going up and commodity prices. We bought Luke oil at 64 cents and sold at $64. We bought gold from when when, um, when our um, Chancellor Brown was selling it. We bought it off him and sold it at a considerable price, higher multiples, in fact. So um, my involvement with commodity prices goes back to JP Morgan in the hedge fund. And we had very, very good track records of predicting the cycle as a sector. It's been incredibly interesting watching it. And our predictions, I'd say, have been 90% correct. So that's a very relevant part of the whole mining industry and and, and perhaps some some um, information that can help um, some of your listeners. Yes, certainly. Um, if you can tell us, um, obviously, I know some of the, the um, uh, articles that you've got on your website. Um, if you can tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the phase stages of the empire model and how it has allowed you to predict 
um, that the last seventeen the last seventeen years of geopolitical trends. Um, well, you... uh, well, let's just start. Let's just start with the as a physicist, I'm a great yeah. believer in fractal theory, which is small things replicate very precisely in bigger dimensions. And so, if you just look at a single human cycle, we're born and we die. And if we die of old age, we're born without a lot of energy and wisdom, and we die without a lot of energy and wisdom as we weaken and become senile. So there are two points on the curve, in effect, of our life cycle that we have. And somewhere between the two, we will manifest a peak based on our energy and our knowledge and our enthusiasm. And that peak is somewhere, I would say, 60% of an average lifespan. But, you know, people, there's a lot more variance, but somewhere where we're going to wake up one day and not realize this is the time when we're the most secure, where we have the most you know, the happiest, probably most influential time of our lives. And that day will slip past secretly, silently, and we'll never see it. That's exactly what happens to empires, by the way. They have a day like that and they never see it. But we also have a day like that as individuals. And then the first stage as an individual is really what would be regionalization in the in the empire state where we grow up, we are taught by our schooling systems, we assume best practice. If we're well-educated, we really do get best practice. We learn who we are and we develop our own ideas. And somewhere near the peak of that cycle, we question our parents' values and the society around us, which is why students tend to be rebellious. Is because the energy of rebellion is really about, are we properly adapted for the next stage of our incarnation to expand? And it's the questioning phase, which means each generation adapts to the environment they're in rather than just takes the lessons by road to the parents and just you know fails to adapt and survive into the next generation. It's very healthy um, questioned when you question properly and and you're listened to. So that's the end of regionalization. And at that stage, you shoot out into the world. You're full of energy. You're full of aspiration. And you have some knowledge which accumulates. And you build yourself a world which is expansionary phase to the point where you build your family, your home, your business, whatever it is. And it reaches some peak where you just can't push it in further. Uh, and then you move into the third stage, which is maturity. And you know, all human beings have maturity. You're probably more tolerant, more integrated, more understanding because you have security. You built something. You're happy, and you're at that phase when actually you're most tolerant in your life. And you know, mature human beings, on the whole, on average, tend to be more tolerant than they are at any other stage of their existence, either side of it. And empires and nations are exactly the same in their cycle. And then something happens near the top, and you start to sort of gradually really live probably beyond your means in some way, whether it's through the energy of your life, whether it's your health, whether it's money, whether it's relationship, whether it's business. Things really are look okay, but they're not really okay. It takes some time before that bites home, and then there's an event, something, an illness or a loss or some phase where literally you go from overextension into decline and into the end. That's a life cycle for a, a human now, if you go to the opposite end, an empire, as I call them, were really the biggest social ordering structures in our history. And they are driven not by age, but they're driven by demographic expansion and contraction. So when a social system demographically expands, it seems to have the energy that seeks and creates a coherence, which has the greatest effect on the world around it. And it goes through the regionalization phase. And it assimilates and copies. If you go back to the Chinese, there was a time 30 years ago when people would turn their nose up at the Chinese and say they could only copy, they'll never create. And yeah, I which is saying, different now. You know what, guys? They're going to copy, assimilate, and then they're going to be creative. So the first stage for the Chinese was regionalization. And in fact, they, they, you know, they've been 
regionalizing past their civil war, which ended in you know, 1950, and they've been regionalizing in terms of secretly, well, they, they subtly went out into the world rather than overtly, whether it's, you know, the Korean Wars, the Vietnam Wars, the war with India in 62, you know, they've been expanding Tibet in 1950. They've been constantly expanding in front of us, but they've also been copying to get themselves to the state of a Western society. That includes stealing IP and doing all sorts of things, enticing American corporations into China and stripping them bare, in effect, turning them into just puppets. So they've been very effective at that. And then the next stage is after you've energized and you've built, uh, you start to r build resource chains around the world. And of course, now you're becoming economically richer and now you want to secure your resource chain. So you militarize and you start to take people around you, start to become very expansive. And Britain did that after its first civil war. And the first thing it did was fight the Dutch. When it finished the Dutch off, it went to the, went to the, the French and, and onwards and upwards, we built an empire. And these, these are these are without comment about what's right and wrong. They're just almost like an unconscious social organizing process that keeps repeating itself. Doesn't matter whether they're capitalist, authoritarian, democratic, it's the same social response to this expansion of a population and need for greater coherence. Yeah. I was gonna say, with say the last twenty or thirty years, with all the everything that's gone on. How has that, how has the sort of, the, I suppose, the mining industry or even the resources industry, how have you seen that change due well, to political, uh, political involvement, everything that's gone on? Okay, okay, so let's look at two overriding forces on the mining industry. Yeah. The first is the Kondratiev cycle, which is a 54-year commodity cycle, which has really been first found by a Russian economist in about 19, mid-1920s. Brilliant man. And he picked sort of this 24 to 26 year up cycle in three waves and then down in three waves back to where they started from. And the new cycle started in 2000. So in the beginning of 2000, it's no coincidence, for example, that Russia went tits up in 1990 because it was a commodity based society. And the Cold War could be modeled between a producing society of commodities called the USSR and a consumer society called America. And lo and behold, where was America losing, the, seemed to be losing? 75, the peak yeah. of the last cycle. Yeah. And then gradually on the downhill slope, communism wasn't making any money, which you know, it didn't anyway. It was a commodity producer. And the commodities came out the ground at a lower price and the system had a higher military burden. And lo and behold, it blew itself up by 1990. And meanwhile, as it got poorer, the consumer societies got richer because the input prices were lower. Yeah. So you could take the whole... 50-year cold or 40-year cold war and stick it around a commodity cycle Kondratiev wave. And it's very, it really does explain the economics underneath it all. The new cycle started in 2000. And, you know, at that stage, uh, the world was a, you know, a unipower of America. The Chinese have been sneaking up on the Americans slowly. They had their plan in action, but they really weren't on the horizon. They've been pushed back in their box in 1996 with the Taiwan Straits crisis like everyone else had realized after the first and second Gulf Wars, American military power was truly unbelievably powerful beyond anyone's imaginings. So if you were going to grow up, you had to grow up under the umbrella of American power and you had to do it covertly and not overtly. Now, they needed resources and their resource acquisition strategy started and was planned in 96. And they started to execute it bit by bit. They were moving out into the world and they were trying to acquire things, which added increased demand to a Western system, which was also going through the same cycle. So it's like stacking one demand unit on top of another. 
And so we saw this sort of increase in commodity prices from 2000 to 2011 and 12. And we saw China increasingly become a relevant buyer. Now, what is different about those two systems is that the West requires on free capital, free choice and companies to make their decisions. But the Chinese did something really different. And it's easy to be arrogant about our system because our system created global maritime power in a time of sailing ships where individuality was important and decentralization and flexibility worked to build the Western Christian world. But in a way, we have central communication. I'm not convinced that that's the advantage anymore. And looking at the way the Chinese make plans for the future and have done consistently to acquire their resources into you know, tens and tens of years ahead for a business, for, for an industrial base they see as being second to none, I think actually has put the world on the back foot. So you've got this added piece of the Chinese acquisition process and the and and and, and, and sort of. And so the minimization in some ways of Western resource acquisition strategies. And a really good example is the rare earth um, element piece. They knew that if they cornered this piece, then essentially what would happen is the West would go to sleep as it has done. And then the world would become reliant on its rare, rare earth um, elements. And again, no government in the West provided for that or saw it coming or thought about, you know, should we be countering it? They just blindly believed because America believed that by investing in America, China would become a stakeholder in the American worldview. And that failed for Russia because they turned away from it. It failed in Iraq. And it's very easy to be American and think everyone wants to be American. But the truth is they don't. And when they've been offered being American, they've taken what's on offer and then rejected the system usually to the detriment of America and China in a way that's on a scale that's almost breathtaking. So it, Americans have fallen into this trap of being duped by Chinese intentions very, very effectively. And the net effect is that the Chinese resource acquisition strategies are far more embedded than they've ever been. And as we go through the decline, as we go further into the decline, and we'll talk about where that stops, you know, the natural buyer of resources are the Chinese because they are not subject to free market pricing. And the result is that no Western capital enterprise can compete with a central government acquiring resources for its nation for the next 50 years and being actually insensitive about prices. So there's a, there's a real issue there. The natural, what's really going to happen as you go down is a natural buyer of the Chinese, the natural seller of the West. Yeah. And then we'll come on to the next part of that strategy later on. Um, and then just looking ahead a bit further, from 2012 onwards, we've been in the negative phase of the positive uplift. So I've talked all the way along that actually you really don't want to be in the extractive industry as you move into 2019 and 20, because the low will be so brutal, you'll be lucky to hang on to anything you have. And it's a, you know, a multi-year, five to eight years of decline. And by the end of it, you'll think there'll never be an end again. It'll feel an awful lot like 2000, but it isn't. It's very different than 2000. And we can talk about that. Well. Yeah, um, you obviously mentioned the, and I, 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 I try and obviously pronounce this the um, uh, contractive. Um, I think it was a person, the the contractive work. The, the, yeah, contractive work. That's it. Um, how's that? How how have you harnessed that to predict commodity prices? Well. Um... If you look on my website, if anyone's interested, then you'll see an explanation of you know, how to harness it. It's basically, um, it's think of a, um, a point zero and then 24 to 25 years later, there is a high. 
And in between that, there are there's an up, a down, and an up. Now, the, the, the up that comes in the second up is really huge. And it's usually the commodity price appreciation that leads to conflict. Because one of my arguments is that humans fight only one, over one thing, and that's resources. Yeah. Whether they're human, whether they're, you eat them, or whether you use them for industrial process, that's what we fight over. And we mask it you know, with religious constructs or belief systems, but it's only about resources. So you know, World War I was at the peak of that cycle. The peak of the Cold War was the peak of that cycle. And World War II, I would argue, was just a continuation of World War I with a hiatus. So, so those peaks are really when people go to war, when the price of commodities seem impossible, they seem unattainable, and they justify it as we have to do this to survive. And we are coming into one of those periods. So you know, looking, looking where we are right now, we've got another 18 months, I think, of real nastiness. And that nastiness comes through a, really a drop in demand that is a separate question we'll cover and a, a, a debt crisis in um, the Western world that absolutely kills the demand for commodities for a period, allows the Chinese companies to buy whatever's left on the street of the highest quality. And then we end up with this horrendous appreciation um, price move from 20 to 26, 27, which is three to four times more powerful than the one that happened from 2000 to 2011. And that is the place you want to be. If, you're, if you've survived the, the, the forest burning, then that is the place you really want to be. So you know, a mining company has two big things to ask yourself. How do I survive? What is the last kick of the price depreciation? Because let's be honest, it's been going, going down for a hell of a long time now, since 12 to 14, depending on which individual ore you're looking at. How do I survive this next piece so that I'm strong enough to buy everyone else in a weakened state? Because what comes next, I think, is where real generational wealth is made. Yeah. What would you say to sort of CEOs and and I suppose directors of mining companies, whoever's in senior management, um, what should they really be focusing on and what should they be looking at, especially if they've already got operations um, and maybe recently required that, acquired some operations and companies etc and even junior miners what should they really be focusing on and having a look obviously from what you're saying it doesn't seem to be a great outlook but if you've already done that commitment what, what do you really do, should you, okay, what so, you do? So let's, let's split the world into into two parts right let's, let's look at one big overriding question the strategic competition between america and china and this trade war is not going to be resolved with a negotiation because this is the only chance America really has of holding back China. If it doesn't make the attempt now and Trump is really aware of it, the outcome is going to be a truly dominant China in a few years time. So this is the last time to grab the ankles of China and Trump gets it. There will be no negotiated settlement. There will only be an increase in friction and only on Friday. Trump's allusion to saying American companies need to leave China. It's not a Tourette's type tweet. It's not a stroke of unconsciousness. It's very, very, very clearly um, a, a plan that he has that maybe he let slip a little early because America has to extract itself from the grip of Chinese manufacturing and the Chinese you know, basically stealing their IP, which means disengagement. What that means is the world is about to be bifurcated between a Chinese world and an American Western world. If you've got your mines and you're supplying the Chinese and you're doing it out of a Western location, you're really going to be in trouble because I'm not sure you're going to be allowed to do it. 
I don't think we'll have a free global free trading system anymore. So you've got to be aware about who your customer base is and where you are. So there are going to be a number of isolated. And if you think about the partition in India, where what happened between, you know, um, those who are Islamic and those who are Hindu, leaving their villages, migrating across, you know, what was the new border and the chaos that ensued. That's a very good vision for the partition of, you know, the resource industries around the world, because I think that's a really a big risk. And then the second risk is how do you survive, you know, what is a downward move? Well, let's split it into two halves. If you're a precious metal business, you're laughing. Because if there's one thing that's going to come out smelling very nicely of this is basically gold, silver and platinum, because fiat currencies, printing of money, all the things that, you know, were what the printing press could provide are going to, in effect, fall apart in terms of recognition of value and solid physical assets are going to replace them. So if you're in that sector, you just keep you just keep working on it. There's a chance of a bizarre dip, but essentially absolutely worst case i can't see gold below 1100 and it may have already started its ascent and it's on the way to 3000 so if you're you know if you're smart about the dip it won't be it will, the worst case is some sort of weird thing to do with bonds which is, is which is because people caught the wrong way i think the chance of that are 50 50 now but beyond that the prognosis is fabulous so what do you do in the other sectors you know if you're looking at copper iron ore they're all looking you know, looking like they're going to make new lows on the past three years, which means if you thought you were smart, if you leveraged your assets to buy more assets, you are probably not going to survive. So what you've got to do is find a way of deleveraging at this level. However painful it is, however hard that decision is, it could basically cut the limbs away that keeps you alive. And um, if you were thinking about investing and you don't have that debt, then just hold off a little bit. Hold off until basically... You're closer to the time where the money that gives you free liquidity goes into your business to produce the returns you need. I mean, labor rates or you know, the number of mining engineers, your employment costs are going to collapse because people in the mining industry, sadly, are going to suffer in this, this paradigm. So, again, you know, hold off your investment protocols for until you know the low's in place or you can see the low coming and that's when you start to do it. So it's it's a pretty horrible scenario. And. On my site, I call it, you know, Arkin scenario because it is a bit like getting into an arc and floating while everyone else gets inundated. It's going to be, I think, a very, very tough environment. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned it's good to be in, obviously, precious metals. What about the emergence of uh, the battery, the battery uh, commodities um, and the, uh, I suppose, emerging uh, EV market, electric vehicle market and what they're predicting to to happen what would you say about those those types of commodities look um i I need to go and um i need to actually go and have a good um i haven't got any price models for it um so please this is slightly caveated compared to yeah my my other um statements but i suspect they're probably in the middle you know they're 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 not going to behave like precious metals they are going to see drops in demand um which which are nasty because there's a lot of leverage into this space as the new world um, and if you're not in it, then you should use this dip by it's over to get in it. But um, not as bad as the base metals. But still, I think there'll be problems. OK. Um, also, you've got a theory around uh, commodities and the Cold War. Um, I wonder if you can explain a little bit about that. Well, it's simply that if you come, if you model this idea, first of all, you know, 
when we use analogies for where we are now and the deterrence of China by America, there's one thing that's very different. After the Second World War concluded, the world split in effect, or before, but the result was it split into Russia, uh, who had split away and become atheist through communism. And uh, remember, Germany had tried to become atheist too through Nazi socialism. The two fought out the slot of you know, the atheist remains of this great Western world. And then there was a core that was left with you know, Europe and America, which was a Christian element. But they were, surprisingly enough, relatively old as entities. So these old, older individuals, let's think of them if you characterize the nations, stood off in their Cold War against each other. They also remembered the price of conflict because every leader had been a part of it and seen the millions and millions of people that had died as a result of it. So there was a really healthy inhibition towards really going there. Even though nuclear weapons were something that, you know, were a new paradigm, there was conservative inhibition towards actually pulling the trigger. And in the meantime, the Soviet Union looked stronger and stronger because commodity prices increased from 1950 through to 75 in this three-wave move. And by the peak of 75, of course, communism really looked like a viable you know, economic model because it was doing really well. In fact, all it was doing was producing commodities and selling them at high price. And meanwhile, the consumer societies that were depending on input prices were looking weaker and weaker. So at 75, if you'd landed from another planet, you'd have said, well, it looks like Russia's really winning this Cold War. And of course, over time, the commodity prices went down. Um, um, Reagan made a deal with the Saudi Arabians to go and push the price of oil down. That only worked because it was a downhill push of the barrel. It wouldn't have worked on the other side of that spike. Up until 75, no amount of manipulation, in my opinion, would have had the same effect. So all of a sudden, America started to start to move forward. It had more money. The US decided less money, spent more on defense. And the net effect was it had less revenues as commodity prices declined. And by 1990, it was bust. And the military avenues of moving forward had been completely and utterly negated by the successful Falklands campaign, where what was perceived to be a very weak capitalist system provided Britain and Thatcher that fought 8,000 miles away and showed huge determination. And that was when the Politburo realized they couldn't use force against the Europeans and expect to survive. So they, their military options had already declined as their economic options went down the hill too. And coincidentally, the Reagan changes through greater capital employment because the country had become richer and more forward-looking had meant a huge technical advantage for the for the Allied forces that only really showed itself in the first Gulf War. Yeah. One congratulative cycle. Okay. Um, just want to slowly wrap this up. Um, unless you've obviously got a lot more to tell, which I, yeah, I know you probably have. But what would you, how would you see the next, and I wouldn't say the next decade, how would you see the future um, in terms of uh, the future of the mining industry, uh, the challenges that obviously mining companies face, the challenges obviously uh, around commodity prices and how they're going to move. Obviously, you have mentioned some of that. But as a sort of, I suppose, concluding, concluding part, how would you see the, the mining industry move over the next maybe 10, 20, 30 years? How do you see it unfolding? Well, let's, let's just do, um, okay, um, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, a greater trend towards automation is a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and systemization and, you know, the use of AI to find, find resources under the ground uh, on a way that, you know, we can only imagine. Just like three-dimensional seismic has changed our understanding of the ground, that's going to just keep happening more and more. 
higher resolution. So in effect, the cost of development will be lower per given depth of mine or asset. Those things are, are going to be a part of the ongoing trend. If I was starting from scratch and you and I said, well, let's start a mining company, what are the criteria we need to look at right now? They are, they are as follows. First of all, I want um, something that is relevant to uh, the future economies of wherever I'm selling it to. So I don't think copper and I don't think iron and I don't think any of the base metals will be any less relevant in the next 10 years than they were. In fact, they're about to be more relevant because I really do see a full on arms race between the West or specifically America and China. And that will suck up raw resources like nobody's business. Yeah. Um, I want to know that I am actually in my sphere of influence. So we are Western and I want to know that my investments are in the Western sphere of influence. How do I define the Western sphere of influence? Well, th there's a thing called, you know, um, um, debt colonialism that the Chinese use. They've gone to Africa and they've gone around the Pacific and they've lent things to build harbors and the country can't pay it and they've owned it. Now, that is the first stage of overseas acquisition. At the moment, it's uh, not nice to look at, but it's relatively benign until the day when the Chinese Navy can reach that phase um, unimpeded and suddenly military force is brought to bear to essentially get the money back. And I think most of Africa believe that whatever they borrowed from China, they're never going to have to repay it. And they failed to see that China has the greatest shipbuilding capability in the world and wants to build the biggest navy in the world. So their comeuppance will one day land on their doorstep. Unless, unless the Americans, the Indians, the Japanese and its fellow allies work hard enough to constrain access to those points on the seaways. So I need to be in a strategically safe place or relatively safe place, so you know, America would be great, but obviously that's close to home. Parts of Africa increasingly, as I think Trump starts to realize, isolating Africa from China is very important strategically. So that's an area that I'm fascinated by, keep watching that. Uh, the, the, the Americas, North and South, all fit into that bill. So right area and, and right assets. And then I'd be looking for my timing, and I would be looking in the next year or so to have highlighted in key sectors the best possible assets available, not the cheapest ones, the best, because they're all going to be cheap. And that's when I'd be looking to invest in those sectors. And if I was already in there, I would actually be looking for capital to call upon in the future by by creating, well, you can still do it in the capital markets, finding a way of, of finding capital and talking about a long-term strategic view of this that goes outside just, I want to go and dig a hole and, and, and take an ore to marketplace. Because I think one of the things that, that, that is really lacking here is an appreciation of how this geostrategic system is working and how you time your assets rather than just get lucky. Uh, and that whoever can do that in the mining sector, I think, could be immensely successful and in 10 years time could become a true powerhouse because the leverage returns are going to be spectacular if you can time that right. I think they could be 50 to 100 times. OK. All right. And I want just finally... Um... A bit about yourself and what you're looking to do moving forward. Um, obviously, I know you've obviously produced two books. Um, I know you're on the, uh, I suppose, speaker stage, going around doing presentations. What else is um, David going to be up to? Well, um, my my new site is really um, answers that question. And one of the things I really want to do is take this knowledge 
which you know, had come from specific uh, experiences in my life and proven to be remarkably accurate. You can go to the site and you can see all our calls and their track record for people that you know, perhaps question whether it's possible to do this kind of prediction um, and, and actually work with very specific types of organizations and people in charge. Uh, and they are people actually can hear this and have uh, the courage and fortitude and vision to listen to this and put it into practice. Um, often a lot of people listen and they say that's really interesting and then they go back to um, norm yeah and i often think of this story of the manchester air disaster where the plane took off and 20 minutes later there was a huge bang and there were flames basically in, in one of the engines and the pilot came over the tanner and said we're turning back would you all please listen to the cabin staff for your instructions obviously they were told to take grass position and when the time come came the airplane hit the runway with a terrible bang the runway collapsed, the undercarriage collapsed and it screeched to a halt and the plane stopped. And, you know, what exactly happened then? Well, 90% of people stood up and they reached for their hand luggage. And 10% realized that the cabin was filling full of smoke. They, they were obstructed along the companionways and they climbed over the backs of the seats to get out because at a minute before they were all poisoned. And human mindsets are such that when faced with something that is abnormal, most people distort to the normal, hoping it's just going to go back to normal. And my site is really designed to work with those people that fit the 10%, that can see something's wrong but can't put the framework around it and essentially help them navigate their way through this successfully. Got you. Really appreciate your time, David, for providing us a really depth insight to your findings and um, how, you've seen, how you've seen the world playing out based on obviously previous historical events. Um, I know you've got a lot of content on your website and in your books, but if our audience wants to find out some more info information or wants to ask you specific questions, how can they go about doing that? So um, the site is a very open, transparent site. Um, you can obviously find out about my books. One, Breaking the Code is a relevant one with the predictions and concepts we've been talking about that goes back to 2010. You can see theories on there and there's video clips and track records. So I put it really out there in an open state and it's it's a, hopefully the place to start. And by the time you've digested that in about a year's time, then please you know come back and ask me any questions that aren't, aren't available within <laughs> it. Um, but if you would like um, guidance or advisory work, whether it's board work or specific advisory work to the, to the um, C-suite of organizations, then please contact me. There's a place on the site to do that. I'm happy to discuss with you how we can help. Yeah. And what's your website address? It's uh, very simple. It's David Murrin and M-U-R-R-I-N.co.uk. And you can hop on it, look at videos. And sort of this is basically the beginning of a window into a thinking very differently about how the world works. Yeah. And are you on any social media platforms? Uh, uh, that we do have we're, we're beginning to wind up I'm a little bit of a geriatric museum <laughs> and that, but you know we're beginning to move Twitter and Facebook because we really do need to push this further afield because if we can't get you know, leaders in, in businesses and organisations to listen then essentially you know, none of it none of the world isn't going to change and I think on a bigger scale we sit at the confluence of the biggest power shift the world's ever seen between west to east in this decade and how that is managed would dictate whether we go to war and leave very little or whether we do it peacefully. We've got, you know, 
problems with climate change, which I think is way worse scientifically. The evidence is overwhelming. It's much worse than people accept. And that just increases the friction coefficient. And then we've also got problems with AI that one day is going to become sentient. And if it becomes sentient during an arms race, it may conclude that we're not relevant. So I think we sit in this decade that really is whether or not humanity learns from history, makes better decisions and becomes more, or we actually just go down repeating our errors, which is one of the main reasons why I started writing my book and talking about it publicly, because as a parent, it's something that I care about deeply. And if we don't um, transmit and share the knowledge that we've earned through our working experience to make our world more productive and smarter in how we operate, then you know we're failing as a parent. Yes, and certainly. Yeah, I mean, there's very, very important uh, points that you have made there. Um, and alternatively, you can contact myself and I can pass any questions on to David. Um, my email address is rob at mining-international.org. Thank you again for listening. Hope you got a, value, a lot of value from uh, this podcast. I certainly did. Um, and like I said, if you wanted to reach out to David, uh, look at the website, email myself um, for any uh, relevant information that you require. So until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.